This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Black-Tailed Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. We're here at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. I'm Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and we have the distinct pleasure of talking to someone who I hold in high esteem, Jim Heffelfinger from the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Welcome, hey, Jim. Good to be here. All right, Jim. So you are, you write in our magazine pretty regularly, if not every single issue, mm-hmm. talking about game, uh, big game, mule deer growth. Um, you're the head of the Mule Deer Working Group, which is part of the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. But tell us who you are. Where did you come into the world of, of wildlife management, big game conservation, and, and, and to be who you are right now? Well, I've been a biologist for Arizona Game to Fish for 26 years. The first 22 and a half years of that was as a regional biologist. So I was at the front lines of organizing all the, the surveys, mule deer and, and, and deer and pronghorn and, and cow's whitetail. Um, and after about 22 years of being on the front lines of actually managing deer populations, I was always involved through that time in, in a lot of larger scale Western stuff. I've been involved in um, the Mule Deer Working Group, which we'll talk about for 20 years and the last 12 years or so as the chair of that that working group. And so in the last two and a half years, uh, I've transitioned to uh, another position in our agency called Wildlife Science Coordinator, where I, I deal with more national issues that affect uh, our department and serve on, on committees to represent the department in kind of the science realm. And so um, we've, we've established the, the Mule Deer Working Group about 20 years ago, it was in 97, that the directors of uh, 23 Western agencies called WAFWA, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and they established a group because the uh, mule deer populations in the 90s were declining, and declining um, pretty much all over their range, and so there was a widespread concern that there was uh, at least maybe one ubiquitous cause, and, and we need to find out what was causing the mule deer decline to the west. So they assembled a working group. And the working group is uh, made up of one mule deer expert from each of the 23 western states and Canadian provinces. And we started meeting twice a year, three times a year, and, and, and really found out after a while that, that the decline for mule deer throughout the west in the 90s was not one cause, but a lot of different causes. Droughts in the southwest deserts, uh, heavy snows and, and some harsh winters in the northern Rockies areas. And, and so it wasn't really one thing that we had to solve, but we started this process of developing information uh, about mule deer and about mule deer management to get some of the technical information in a more easily digestible form for for biologists on the ground and able to use that information to to better manage uh, mule deer populations. So collectively you guys are basically the the brain trust of the the western deer managers for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Right yeah it's a it's a it's a, a unique but really neat situation where you have an expert from each of the western states and Canadian provinces to to get together and and do something that was never done before, and that was a share information. How do you do this? How do you do that? Um, do, you, do you have uh, antler point restrictions? Um, how, what kind of predator control do you do in, in your agency? And just through that sharing of information, did a lot to pull together kind of Western mule deer conservation among all of the agencies as we all just started talking more. And you know, Jim, I've been a part of uh, the Mule Deer Working Group as long as you've been chair, and, and I know MDF's been there, and, and as our other groups. And you know, I, we really appreciate the opportunity to work with uh, folks like you who are still active in the, the biology. You know, us as folks that don't do the biology so much anymore, 
really look forward to coming to those meetings and seeing the products uh, that you guys push out there. So what are some of the what are some of the information that the Mule Deer Working Group has out there, and how can the public use it to understand mule deer conservation? You know, maybe help them provide better input to their state fish and game agencies or just have better general knowledge about the state of mule deer and mule deer biology? Yeah, when we got together, we, we first of all kind of decided that some of our main goals, some of our main goals were to pull together some of the scientific information that was not very easily found or digestible by even biologists, but certainly not the, the general public, and provide an information flow of that information to the agency biologists so they could use it and manage mule deer consistently, but also provide some good information to the public so they kind of knew um, what the major things were affecting mule deer throughout the West and, and what they could do about it. And we've always uh, appreciated the, the support for the Mule Deer Foundation and the, the chapters in doing projects and doing habitat improvement projects really turn into a really important arm to, to get some of these things done on the ground and get some things really done for mule deer on the ground rather than just talking about it in public. Right, so you have guidance out there. I know that energy development guidance and ecological habitat guidance. And, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how those came to be, what's in that document, and how those can be used for mule deer conservation. Yeah, the, the, we've got throughout 20 years, we've got a lot of different documents. And, and one thing we put together is, is we, we developed some habitat guidelines for each of the seven ecoregions throughout North America. And those habitat guidelines um, not only help, help biologists, but, but local MDF chapter representatives can look through those and see what do mule deer need from a habitat perspective. And, and they can find throughout those documents uh, things that they can do, whether it's adding water catchments in dry areas or, or um, introducing burns or disturbance into the habitat to, to refresh the uh, brush development and, and more forbs on the ground. And, and so we've, we've got habitat guidelines. We, we did develop some. Uh, so before you go on there, so just for our listeners out there, so no matter where you are in the mule deer or blacktail deer range, you can go to these documents and find out the ecological information, the threat information, how, you know, how the herds are doing, and what recommendations and what we can be doing for mule deer conservation. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's so important that sportsmen stay engaged and stay engaged in land management plans with the Forest Service or the BLM. And when you see those things are available for comment, a lot of the information we provided, uh, like energy development guidelines, habitat guidelines, can be used by, uh, by sportsmen to go to those agencies and say, it doesn't look like you're addressing mule deer habitat needs because we need more fires. We need more of this and more of that. And and so the sportsman can be um, informed by all that information and use that to pressure agencies to do the right thing for mule deer. Well, you know, as a former federal biologist, I would love to see those comment letters coming in with information like that because, you know, a lot of us know that stuff, but we don't get the support. And, you know, to see it come from the outside would really give us the ability to, you know, make that argument during the planning process and decision-making process to really do the right thing based on our professional judgment and the knowledge that's out there. So, you know, I, I think those things are uh, just awesome. And, you know, the, the ecology, you know, it's different in each region. So we need to know those differences. So what are some of the other guidance documents that are out there right now, Jim? I know you're working on a seating one because we talked about it the other day during the meeting. But Yeah, there's um, we've produced uh, monitoring methods for monitoring mule deer populations, and that's not something uh, sportsmen so much are going to be directly interested in, but but everybody benefits from having 
uh, all of the agencies having some consistency in the way they monitor population and, and being able to uh, discuss that. And so when, when we first started with the Mueller Working Group back in the, the late 90s, one of the first things we did was, was list and talk about uh, what are the major things affecting Mueller populations throughout the West? And, and we started with that list and we started talking about long-term habitat changes, changes in the nutritional level of the habitat. We talked about predation. Um, and we went through and, and uh, fire, fire suppression and the fire suppression being so aggressive that we don't get that disturbance in the forest, changes in hydrology. And so we talked about all of these issues and, and wrote a book in 2003 that had a chapter that addressed each one of these issues. And so that provided a lot of good background information, but we also took that information and, and folded that into a North American Mueller Conservation Plan. And, and it's through that plan that we can hopefully pressure federal agencies to, to pay more attention to mule deer. It's not all about endangered species. Um, there's some of these species like mule deer that are so important to the whole Western culture and the fabric of Western North America that, that they need to be managing for those species too. And th these aren't written, you don't need a PhD in wildlife to read these, right? Right, our goal uh, all along was, was just to provide information that uh, anybody can read and, and it's not highly technical. There's plenty of journals, scientific journals with scientific technical stuff in, and, and this information needs to be able to be read by anybody. The MDF magazine includes um, the working group's fact sheets in it. Um, most issues, not every one, but most issues we do. And in fact, the one that's going to be coming out is, is talking about some, some issues associated with mule deer and whitetail deer, and there's a number of others as well. But you can look at those um, as members. When you get your magazine, you can read some of these fact sheets as well. Right. That was one of the more recent products we started producing was just a, a one page, both sides, fact sheets on all kinds of issues that people always ask about when they come to public meetings. Winter feeding of mule deer, predators, does uh, elk and mule deer, uh, is there competition between elk and mule deer, water development, um, fences along highways, um, movement corridors and, and migration. When we've got about 25 fact sheets now and they're all available uh, on our website. What's w that website? Yep. www.muledeerworkinggroup.com. So it's all one word, muledeerworkinggroup.com. And so all those are, are available there. Um, and as Jody said, each issue of the Mule Deer Foundation magazine includes one of those uh, fact sheets near the front of the magazine. And so we can continually get that information out to uh, all the members. Yeah, and I think those are, are great that they are on one page. They're written in terminology in a way that anyone can understand them and they can be used by anyone. So, you know, you mentioned it. You know, you, you tackle these subjects. One of the things that keeps coming up, particularly in Montana where we have a lot of white-tailed deer, you know, what is that interaction between white-tailed deer and mule deer? And, you know, we, we hear about hybrids. You know, tell us more about that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interest in, in hybridization and mule deer hybrids. We, we, people are, some people are not sure whether it's really real. Some people are convinced that 50% of the deer that they see are hybrids. And, and the truth is that hybridization between, hybridization between mule deer and white-tailed deer occurs but it's very rare, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's, there's different species-specific um, ecology and, and basic biology that keeps them is it, from interbreeding. Is it a mule deer doe and a whitetail buck or vice versa? It's or more or, often, the, or the hybrid, or the offspring sterile? What's going on yep, there? The, more often a, a whitetail male and a mule deer a female. It can be the other way, but the difference in their breeding behavior um, kind of lends itself to, to that kind of combination because whitetail breeding is aggressive. Whitetail males, they chase does and they chase does and chase does. Mule deer breeding is much more laid back where the mule deer move slowly. There's not a, a big heavy chase phase. So you can imagine a mule deer doe that takes one step to try to get away from a buck 
and a whitetail buck that's used to chasing does, that that mating in that direction is, is going to happen. And, more the, and the rut happens at different times. So, in, you know, if, if a doe comes yeah. in estrus early, mm -hmm. she might have a chance to get bred by the other species because yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, but the timing difference, usually in two weeks or so between mule deer and whitetail rut, you a lot of times have elevational difference in, in where mule deer and whitetail are. It's, it's kind of flip-flopped in the southwest compared to the rest of the west, but still they're geographically in different kinds of habitat. And, and then there's biological and physiological differences where those, those hybrids, when you do get a mating between the two species, that uterine environment, for example, is not really well suited and there's a high interuterine mortality. So the and plumbing I, doesn't allow it right, to happen yet. Yeah. You've got two different species that are, that are interacting together in the womb. And so, so you've got a high mortality uh, before birth, you get a high mortality after birth. Actually, the fawns have a high mortality even when they're in captivity given all the food and water and protected from predators, those hybrid fawns have a high mortality. And the off so offspring will be sterile? The male offspring are sterile. The female offspring can actually, they're, they're fertile. They can back cross oh, to wow. a, a male. Hmm. They can back cross to a female. Um, and so you can get, you think of hybrids being 50-50. You actually, if you've got hybridization happening in a population or a local cluster like we see sometimes, you can actually have um, animals out there that are 50-50, but if you've got a female and it's back crosses to a, a white-tailed buck, now you've got their offsprings, three-quarter whitetail and one-quarter mule deer. So you really, it's not always a 50-50 thing. You can have different variations of one-eighth whitetail, seven-eighth mule deer. But that, that's just So rare. if you've got a hybrid, how do you know? What are the physical characteristics yep. of a hybrid? The 50-50 the hybrid, there's, people talk about, they look at a young mule deer and, and all the tines arise from the main beam and they say, well, that looks like a hybrid because it has a whitetail rack. But it's really just a, a young mule deer. And you get funny looking tails. You get white tails and mule deer both that have kind of funny looking tails and they may not be hybrids at all. There's really only one, besides genetics, we can tell genetically pretty easily, but not many people have a genetics lab or access to a genetics lab. So there's only one physical characteristic that you can tell the difference between um, a white tail and a mule deer with 100%, and that's the metatarsal glands. And that's the gland on the outside of the hind leg. And that's not the inner uh, tarsal glands that people talk about a lot, but on the outside of the lower leg, Mule deer have a metatarsal gland that's uh, at least eight inches long. Um, in some of the southern latitudes, it can be as short as six inches long, but normally six to eight inches long. White tails are, are, are an inch or less. There may be big some Saskatchewan white tails that may have an inch and a quarter, but the hybrids then split the difference between those two. And so if you look on the outside of the, the rear leg, the hybrids are going to have two to three inch metatarsal glands. And that's the only physical characteristic that you can tell with 100% certainty that you've got a, a, a hybrid, at least a 50-50. Now, once you get back crosses, that starts to dissolve and not get so... And that's a little so. harder in field ID. Yeah. That's a... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, but so I think the important thing for our listeners is, is, you know, look at that outside gland. You know, it may look like a mule deer rack or a whitetail mm -hmm. rack, but, you know, what Jim's telling us is that gland is the only sure physical giveaway without testing the and, genetics. And that's hard to see hard to see in tall grass, so you just have to really be careful with your, your identification. Most of the hybrids that are reported to us are people that have a mule deer and they just put a whitetail tag on it, and they're trying to convince the game warden they're at least half right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we know they cross. We know that you can produce offspring. Mm -hmm. What, from an interaction standpoint, what separates mule deer uh, from whitetail and, you know, where they live, what their requirements are, how they interact. Yeah, the hybridization is one thing. It's more of a biological curiosity rather than uh, any kind of real conservation concern because it's so rare. But, but we have whitetail mule deer and we have them interacting out into the, fi in the field. 
And they have different habitat requirements, and it, it depends on, on what ecoregion you're in. In most of the Rocky Mountain states, of course, the whitetail are in the mountains, and, or the mule deer are up in the mountains, and the whitetail are in riparian areas and the lower areas. In the southwest, Along your rivers, you mean, right. you know, talking right. valley bottoms, rivers, yep. ag field yep. areas. And in the southwest, it's flipped. Our little cow's whitetail are up in the mountains above 4,000 feet, and our desert mule deer are down in the valleys um, in the flat. So it, it differs on where you are, but the point is that they, they occupy different habitat. And, and where they do come together and where they um, both kind of occupy the same areas, um, there's some concern that whitetail are pushing mulder out, usually in that direction. And, and you can have some shifts in what species occupy certain areas, and a lot of that is tied to long-term habitat changes. For example, in West Texas, throughout the last four or five decades, there's been an increase in the density of brush. And mule deer are more open country species and whitetail are more brush species. So as you get an area like West Texas that gets brushier and brushier over a few decades, you'll start to see whitetails, more and more whitetails moving west and moving west. And so sometimes habitat changes can, can shift in what species are occupying a certain area. And sometimes you know, it happens so slow that people don't notice it. You know, Jody, I don't know if you picked up on that, but... You know, I love talking to guys like Jim because he used the proper pronunciation of that southern white <laughs> Actually, I was going and to say, call that out as well, because uh, we have the expert here right now. Yeah. Tell so us again. is it? What cows is it? or coos? It is definitely, it's definitely cows. And when I wrote my book, Deer of the Southwest, I spoke to Elliot Cows, who was an old army surgeon and naturalist in the late 1800s. And I spoke to his great-great-grandnephew in Boston, and he says, oh, we know our famous uncle, Elliot. And, and I asked him how they pronounce their name. And he said, we've always pronounced it cows, as in C-O-W-S. So I have it right from a member of the cows family that it's cows. Now, so, so if someone calls it coos, I don't flinch. I don't, you can call it whatever you want. Probably <laughs> you're, not, you're not a name snob on no, that now. More than half the people call it coos, and I could care less what people call it. But what I don't like is when people say, this is how you pronounce it correctly, and then they mispronounce it. That and drives me up the wall yeah. as a biologist. But well, there you have it. I mean, coming from the yeah. family that, you know, that's named after, I'm going to trust Jim's right on that. Yeah. And from now on, I'll be calling it cow's deer. So if everybody can just agree that Elliot's last name is pronounced cows, <laughs> then after that, I don't care how they pronounce it. They can pronounce it however they want. All right, you know, hunters love to shoot big deer, or they like to understand, you know, how those antlers are grown is it age is it nutrition tell us tell us a little bit jim about antler development what really is the determining factor for how big a buck can get yeah antler growth garners a lot of interest for for obvious reasons and the size of antlers is is really determined on uh, three things and, and people talk about it as being a, a three-legged stool you've got to have uh, you've got to have the age because you're not going to get a big trophy buck as a yearling you've got to have nutrition because antler development is certainly tied closely with nutrition. And then you've got to have some good genetics. And, and a lot of people like to talk about genetics and antler growth, but really if you've got animals and you allow them to grow old and you give them good nutrition, genetics is really the least important of, of those three. And I know one of the fact sheets you're working on right now is potential. You know, if you let a buck get really, really old, that may not mean he's going to keep growing, right? Right, yeah. We, we've got an antler development fact sheet that's uh, not on the website yet, but it's, it's finished and it's approved. And, and one of the things in there that it talks about is that an animal, by the time they're four or five years old, they've, they've attained 80 to 90% of their 
final uh, antler growth. And so from a, a deer management perspective, you, you don't want to manage populations and try to get deer to be eight and nine years old for large areas. You may do that in a, in a local area where you're trying to manage for mature bucks and, and lower uh, hunter densities and a better experience. But statewide, you don't want to manage for an older age structure because you've got the diminishing returns in, in how big those antlers get after four or five. Awesome. You know, one of the things, Jim, that's pretty exciting is, you know, it's been quite a few years since we've had, you know, a textbook written on mule deer. I know you're working on that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the mule deer working group, since we've been together so long, and not just the members of the mule deer working group, but our collaborators and our friends in, in universities and state agencies, we've got such a great network of everybody, all the who's who of mule deer throughout the West. And the last mule deer, uh, good mule deer, publication, a book-sized publication, was over 35 years ago, and that was the Walmo book that many of us still refer to. So we are now... I mean, that that's an important name in mule deer conservation. It, I mean, the, the award you guys give is called the Walmo Award, right? Right, right. There's a Walmo Award that commemorates the leading mule deer black-tailed deer pierce person in, in North America, and it's and, named after and that. And that's what I was going to also point out as well is we keep saying mule deer, but cows, deer down in the southwest, um, blacktail, um, Sika blacktail up in Alaska. Is this all covered within what you were, are we talking western no, deer basically? Y y yeah, no, no, the book will just be mule deer and blacktail deer but, in North okay. America. So it'll be the Sitka blacktail, the Columbia blacktail, and then all of the what we call mule deer subspecies in there. And there's 7 to 11 mule deer subspecies, but uh, genetics shows Sitkas are fairly different, Columbian very different, the blacktails are very different from all the mule deer subspecies. But when you get all the, the central continent mule deer subspecies and you look at them genetically, there's not a lot of difference between those two. And so this book would cover all of those mule and black-tailed deer subspecies, and it will be tapping into all of the expertise that we have access to in our network of, of uh, mule deer people that we know. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, you know, I know MDF's in the middle of helping that book move along down the tracks. So we can expect that book here in the next few years. We hope our listeners see, you know, the, the advantage of owning a book like that because of the process and costs you got to go through. Um, you know, Jim, I know you're a Walmo Award winner, past winner. Um, the working group you lead has just got a pretty uh, prestigious award from uh, the states. And, you know, the, you know, these expos and you guys having a booth here with the state biologists can only do us, uh, you know, great good in, in the mule deer conservation world because you're interacting with the folks, you're talking to them, they're asking you questions, you're getting to understand where the questions are coming from so you can spin that around back to the fact sheets to the work that the mule deer working group does. And let's face it, you know, we're just one uh, big happy family in the conservation community and we like spending time together. So Yeah, the mule deer working group having all those experts together and then there's been throughout the last 20 years there has been an awful lot of times where we needed to publish something, and we're not funded. We're completely unfunded. We're just a, uh, a group of deer biologists. And Mueller Foundation has stepped in and, and paid for an awful lot of things to, to keep that Mueller Deer Working Group productive and get that information out to the public, too. Now, Jim, give us that website one more time where we can find this information for the Mule Deer Working Group. Yeah, our website is www.muledeerworkinggroup.com. So www.muledeerworkinggroup.com. We can find all this stuff and more, contact information, basically everything you want to know about mule deer and black-tailed deer. And conservation is going to be there. And Jim, you've got such a head full of knowledge that I'm sure we're going to get back together with you in, in future times and future podcasts to provide yep. some information that uh, our listeners will be looking for and learning more about mule deer and, and their habitat. I'm awesome. happy to do it. I just benefit from being around 
the West leading mule deer and blacktail deer people, and and I can I can be the mouthpiece for them, but all of the brains comes funneled through this this group that we have. Well, Jim, on behalf of the Mule Deer Foundation, we're lucky to have you. I think Arizona is extremely lucky to have you, and we look forward to continue working with you for the years to come. I'm looking forward to it. All right. I'm Jody Stemler. I'm Steve Belinda. And I'm Jim Heffelfinger. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening in. Talk to you next time. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.